Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And it's been a while since we've done one of these. Yeah. Um, and I've actually seen a ton of movies, but I don't have very much that I can talk about. Uh, because most of what I saw was at the Toronto International Film Festival, <laughs> yeah. which we'll be talking about on the main uh, episode this week. So I'll talk about, I'll cover uh, more, than a, more than a dozen movies there. And then I've also seen some stuff for my job, which I, uh, never, never been told that I can't talk about on the podcast, but I have better safe than yes. I have set rules for myself about, uh, what I, what I will and won't talk about. I Uh, am, I am only now, like I've never been in a situation where I worry about what I say on the show. I worry now because now I'm a teacher and my students, if they want, can find me pretty easily uh as past students have told me. Um, and I don't think I say anything remarkably controversial, but you never quite know what the L.A. uh, community college system is going to find controversial. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, I got to try and stay away from the politics or anything. Who knows? Um, But anyway, uh, okay. So now, real now, real quick, maybe before we get started, I will say that this episode or this movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, a premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, the aforementioned Toronto International Film Festival, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. Now, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. Right now, you can read all about the LA Film Fest and, uh, no joke, 41 reasons to see the short films at this year's festival. I'm guessing there are 41 short films, I would right? hope so. What if there's only 12, but they're really good? Yeah. Um, but I anyway. like that kind of devotion. <laughs> yeah, commitment. I know. I know. So, um, but then they also have another one. This is interesting, actually, to me, uh, for reasons I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, they talk about VR uh, and 360-degree technology uh, and how to make the most engaging experience you can with it. Uh, so to check out this and other articles, just go to the page for this week's Movie Journal episode and click on... On the mini flicks banner at the bottom. So um, last year at the International Christian Film Festival, there was this guy, uh, very, a very sweet guy, but uh, certainly uh, very forward. Uh, he was from Poland, and he he went to my talk and 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 seemed to really like my talk. And so he goes, he said, I made a VR short film that I would love you to see. I was like. Ah, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so he, you know, he essentially strapped like these goggles like onto my, onto his phone, and then put those and earbuds like into my ears mm-hmm. and on over my eyes. And it is this, it is interesting. I'll say that. Like it was this short film about like this couple that has been like arguing and then like one guy's in a car accident and you are essentially in the back seat during the car accident and you can look around and you can see the car coming where he cannot and it's it's pretty harrowing yeah and so uh while i don't think because it's a you know you can only do it on an individual basis i don't think we'd have to worry about it ever taking over or anything like that but it definitely is an interesting uh idea and so when they uh 
when Miniflix was talking about this uh, blog post they wrote about it, uh, it intrigued me. So once again, you can find that uh, at Miniflix or just go to uh, Battleship Pretension and then in the post for this uh, movie journal, just click on the ad at the bottom. Okay, let's talk about the movies. Um, <laughs> David I, is ill. Yeah, I feel like shit right now. Um, and work is stressing me out. Yeah. And I can't tell if it's hot in this room or if it's because I'm sick. Um, it's a little bit hot, but yeah. I've got the air going, and so it'll hopefully cool down. So, I'm sorry, how many movies did you, did you say you had to talk about? I have four, and then I have four TV shows. Okay, so um, I'm going to do two. Okay. This, this, I have two. Uh... And then I'll end with one. Yes. So okay. I'll start, but I'm going to start with two. Uh, and one of them is that a rewatch. Just, that was just dead air. That was, that was uh, fun. While we yeah, we were figuring out. it out. That's fine. <laughs> um, I'm starting with a rewatch, a okay. movie I have not seen in over 20 years. Wow. I watched uh, George Lucas's Star Wars. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, or as people seem to insist on referring to it now, A New Hope. But it's called Star Wars. That's what it was called when it was released. Yeah. Uh, It's from 1977. And the last time I saw it was in 1997 when it was re-released in theaters with the the special edition stuff, uh, which is the only one I've never seen either of the other special editions. Right. I've never, so it's been, like with Empire and Jedi, it's probably been 25 years since I've seen those and yeah. I never saw the special editions. Uh, I'm, I'll get to them at some time, at some point. Um, but yeah, so I rewatched Star Wars um, and I kind of felt like not having seen it in over 20 years, it still felt, I, I still felt like I, going in, I was like, I still remember this movie, right? Because it's, yeah, it's in the conversation all the time. So I kind of just felt like I remembered it and a lot of it I did, but there was some stuff that definitely stuck out that I was like, Oh, like I didn't like, I didn't remember that it's almost an hour in before we meet Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's way more with, uh, uncle Owen and aunt Beru that I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> like I kind of remember like, you kind of see them at the beginning and then they get yeah. fried and that's it. But there's like a whole dinner scene and, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, which makes it weird that I guess how quickly Luke kind of gets over the, his parental figures being, <laughs> being, mar- you know, roasted like marshmallows. Um, well it's, I mean, he definitely, I'll say this, like I've been in my class, I've been talking a lot about structure uh-huh. and in a way it's, I mean, I, I applaud George Lucas for allowing us that much time with yeah. uncle Owen and aunt Beru so that when we see that they've been killed, it's like they did not deserve this yeah. at all. They're completely yeah. innocent. Uh, but that's, that's the thing true. is the story now has kicked in and we've got places to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And got so, a crazy yeah, so he eventually like gets, he seems Luke seems way more upset about Obi-Wan dying whom he's known for. <laughs> also, that's another thing. How long does, Star Wars take place over. It's like, it's like a day and a half. I didn't really like, it seems like it's a, it's like no time. I feel like at most uh, a week. <laughs> yeah. I don't even, I don't even know if it's that long. It feels like it's like no time. So yeah. he's known Obi-Wan for like a day and he seems way more broken up about him getting killed. That's than, true. Uh, but these, these are nitpicks. I and when say, it comes right down to it, like Obi-Wan's body just disappears as opposed to the charred corpses yeah. of his yeah, loved ones. It's pretty graphic. Yeah. Um, no, I was really, really impressed uh, to this day by the just the the visual sense and, and George Lucas's yeah. sense of 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 scale um, and detail and how and how much I guess what we've come to know as world building uh, he's able to do, even though like I, I, should, I should make like a 
I was talking about making like a, a letterboxed list of great movies with terrible dialogue. <laughs> Cause this would be on there. Oh, yeah. Titanic, the matrix. Yeah. Right. These are oh, all yeah. great movies with terrible dialogue. Um, and so even, but even then, uh, like uh, even as corny as some of it seems, um, and I feel like, I don't know if this is me reading into it because I know how, I, how Alec Guinness felt about the movie, yeah. but I'm trying, I feel like I could see him not, not caring that much. Um, but you know but, what? Like knowing what I know, uh-huh. I think his performance is even better. Cause I think he actually does like, he evokes things like when he's talking about how things used to be and like, and you see him like kind of stare off as he's talking about like Anakin and all that. Yeah. And I feel like it's actually a pretty good performance for the most part. Um, yeah. But like, uh, when he's before he gets killed, when he has to go like shut down the whatever mm-hmm. in the death star, like, that set is amazing. Yeah. And, and George Lucas really knows, uh, it's funny cause I think of him because I think, okay, he made the prequels, which I think are v- largely very poorly directed. Mm-hmm. And so I forget that he was a good director. He wasn't just like the yeah. idea guy. Yeah. He like with American graffiti and star Wars. And to some extent, THX 1138, which, um, still feels like a glorified student film to me, but has a sure. lot of, uh, shows a lot of promise. Um, he was a good director. He really like, there's a lot of excitement in how he, in how he frames things. And then eventually there's, uh, a great deal of excitement, mind blowing excitement in how he cuts things mm-hmm. that, that the attack on the death star at yeah. the end is still unrivaled. It's, it's so exciting. It's so yeah. thrilling. It's so cool. Um, so overall I came away being like, yeah, I get why this is, I get why I, I, this is, has endured for a reason, even though in the first half I was maybe, maybe checking my phone once or twice while I was watching it at home because it is a little slow in the first half. And I do think that it's one of those things that when you get older, you have a deeper appreciation for it from a structure standpoint, from an editing standpoint, and I think from a casting standpoint. I mean, it definitely, like, you get Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing in there, and it really yeah. classes up the joint. And yeah, I do James like Earl Jones. James, yeah. Yeah. And I do like the idea that uh, someone's like, George, you know, this uh, dialogue's kind of clunky. He goes, get me Peter Cushing. <laughs> he'll, he'll be able to sell it. He's sold much worse than this. Uh, and also with the, with the younger cast, it's like also clear yeah. that Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford are, 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 are stars. Um, yeah. Mark Hamill maybe is a, not, uh, I feel like not he's, as charismatic as the other two right. uh, young leads, but he's still watchable. I think yeah, that's sure. the thing. You sure. know, it's and when you think about, I'm sorry to keep talking about structure and all that, but like, sure, the main character always has to be a little bit bland at right. first, and then and then gain some some wisdom and some depth and that sort of thing. Whereas when you bring in these supporting characters and princess Leia and Han Solo in this film, at least are supporting characters, mm-hmm. um, you bring them in like, and they add a lot of color and yeah. that sort of thing. And so it's, it's what the part needs to be. But you know, in a moment I'm going to be talking about the predator, um, uh-huh. and Boyd Holbrook, who's a perfectly fine actor. Like he just gets completely swallowed up in this much more interesting ensemble. And I don't think Luke ever gets completely swallowed up by the people around him. Almost by that trash compactor monster. He almost got swallowed up by, by that. All right, let's move on to, so the I next see you're movie. not feeling that poorly. Uh, <laughs> this is talking about movies tends to bring me out of it a little bit, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, no, I actually feel like shit, um, which I'm bummed that I feel like shit because I want to give this next movie. Uh, it's, uh, it's due because it's a really impressive movie. I had heard of the movie, 
This is a movie that recently came out. Okay. And the name of the movie gave me completely the wrong impression about of what it is. It's a documentary called John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. Oh yeah. Okay. I assumed it was a biographical documentary about the life of and career of John McEnroe. Right. It is not that at all. Huh? <laughs> um, basically there was this guy named, uh, oh, I can't remember now. I knew it when I saw it, but this was at the end of August. Uh, Gilles de Coverdac or something is his name. He was a French filmmaker who, whose entire career was making these sort of like instructional how to play tennis videos with the big tennis stars of the time from mm-hmm. like the 60s into the 90s, I guess. And shortly before he died, the director of this movie, uh, uh, the John McEnroe movie, whose name is Julien Ferro, uh, met with him and was going through his archives and sort of realized like, well, you've got more footage of John McEnroe than any other, uh, of the stars that you, uh, that you filmed. And so he put together this, uh, like 85, 90 minute documentary composed almost entirely of footage of John McEnroe at the 1984 French open. Okay. Um, which I won't, uh, you know, I, you can look it up what happened in the 1984 French open, whether he won or not. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Um, because that's the only time near the end is the only time the movie actually sort of kicks into having a narrative thing when you're into the, the final match. Um, although even then, even though the movie goes out of its way to try to explain, mm-hmm. I realized that at 30, I was gonna say 35 years old. I'm 36 years old. Uh, as of yesterday. Um, Oh, that's, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's David. Okay. Happy birthday. That's only one of my siblings texted me and did so today, a day oh. late. So, uh, 36 is just not a big one. It's, um, no, no, it isn't. Um, so at 36 years old, I, I think I've realized I'm never going to understand how tennis is scored. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Right. The movie has a whole like animated sequence explaining to you how tennis is scored. And then when it gets to the, the, the climactic match, I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that noise? Huh? Oh, that was my uh, water oh. bottle popping out. Sorry. Okay. Um, anyway, so this movie is so cool and so exciting. Um, and it's so much about, uh, in, in some ways the movie is, and, and actually says this in the narration is kind of an argument for the validity of instructional film as a kind of cinema. Hmm. Um, and in other ways it's about the, uh, it's using a very specific and, uh, non-traditional kind of athlete, which is what John McEnroe, uh, was. I mean, he's still alive, but this is his heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, to look at just the way that an athlete's mind and body work together in concert in a way that has to become instinctual. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he does early on is show like John McEnroe's serve is very unconventional. Like a lot of, uh, things about the way he played the game. Uh, and we see in probably like three quarter motion, probably 30 times we see him like the mm-hmm. slow motion of him of him serving and you realize this thing that looks so gangly and uncoordinated and kind of like furious he's doing it the same way every time even though it yeah. looks like he's not it doesn't look like a like the way you would teach someone to right. serve but he's doing it the same way every time and he's not even really thinking about it it's just yeah. his mind and every part of his body are all working together at the same time and all thinking about the same goal. And he's, it's an amazing portrait of, um, 
a one of a kind athlete. And then it gets into the idea like of John, cause John McEnroe was known for, uh, you know, being explosive and angry and arguing, yeah. uh, argumentative. Um, uh, uh, and 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 yet didn't get the same penalties that Serena Williams just got uh, for the same behavior, which I was, is weird. I was wondering um, what the I, I <laughs> saw uh, like on Twitter or something that she had like gotten very upset about something. I don't know. And, again, and, I don't know about tennis to know what she was upset about. Right, yeah, but it just <laughs> she seems upset. Yeah, but it seemed that um, I don't know. This isn't. I want to talk about the movie, but it did seem like. Uh, it was it was very weird to me having just watched this movie that's full of John McEnroe right. arguing with officials and not getting fined for it, and then seeing Serena Williams do something once and getting fined uh, for it. If, at this point, I know like I know John McEnroe just as much uh-huh. for his temper tantrums, yeah, yeah. As, and probably more so because I don't know anything about tennis. Uh, and so when I saw that like she'd been penalized for something, I was just like. Did she like take a swing at somebody or something? Like, <laughs> yeah. didn't he? This this isn't new, right? Yeah. For tennis, John McEnroe pl- practically does take a swing at a cameraman. Oh wow! Uh, um, at one point, he threatens and he hates the the media. Okay, he hates the sound of their like cameras clicking behind him. And uh, there's one point where he's talking, and he's like, "The thing about John McEnroe, at least in th- at the French Open, in this one, is that he's he's more cranky than angry. Like he's sure. complaining." constantly but he's never really yelling okay and so there's one <laughs> there's one part when he's talking to the press uh and he's trying to get the guy to shut up and then he like points he's like he points to the very end of his tennis racket and he goes right here your teeth you got it <laughs> um, uh, anyway uh but it gets into the idea that like normally getting an, a- an athlete frustrated and angry and in a negative headspace would throw them off their game. Sure. John McEnroe almost not almost actually needs to be in that headspace in order to work. Mm. He can't, he, he can't play tennis in a good mood. Yeah. <laughs> Basically it's a, it's such a fascinating movie that's about so much. Um, it also has a ton of great music in it. There's like some Sonic youth and some black flag. Uh, it's, really really cool john mcenroe in the realm of in the realm of perfection i wish we'd done a movie journal right when i saw it because it's i don't even know if it's in any more theaters uh, at least not it might have moved you know it's probably a platform thing so yeah. i probably left los angeles maybe you can see it uh in other cities now and indeed that is miles away from what i thought it was going to be i'm sure everybody yeah. like yourself thought that it was just going to be a straightforward biopic and that's kind of awesome that it's much more than that yeah um okay so my (laughs) first film is a rewatch we watched it in in class as we were talking about structure and character arc and it is um the film uh brooklyn which uh was my favorite movie of 2015 uh so i've talked a fair amount about it so i don't necessarily want to go into a lot of detail now um you saw the you've seen the film right uh yeah i saw yeah um yeah i think it's it's just it's a a marvelous film in a lot of ways, partially because it managed to overcome some things. One is that it's a movie full of nice people trying to do the right thing while also trying to find some type of happiness. Um, and what I like about it, and I think I said this at the time is that you can get a bunch of people that are all trying to do the right thing and trying not to hurt anybody and people still get hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just the way life is. And I find that idea fascinating because 
unlike most of the movies that we see, even domestic dramas, uh, this is the one that in on principle is the closest to my life or your life or the life of, of most people, you know, um, whether it be whether we watch like a Mike Lee film or a Kenneth Lonergan or, or somebody else who makes just movies about regular, uh, you know, working class people or whatever. Um, the stories that there, there's such a specificity to them that it's just like, okay, well I can certainly imagine that emotionally, but I can't really relate to it. Whereas the idea of you move away from a place and you're torn between your past and your present and your future and the past, it sure sounds good because you know what, you know what to expect from it. Uh, that is very tempting. And, and then the idea of, Oh, I'm in a relationship with this person, but it's not going super well, or we're having, you know, issues that we have to deal with. And the idea of, and this is an issue where something new would does kind of sound appealing. And so it's all these things all wrapped up and, and in the midst, you just have a number of really stellar performances and it's a beautifully shot film. Just, it is damn near a perfect movie. And uh, almost without fail, uh, my students, cause what I do is I have them do like a little one page written reaction, uh, after every movie. And one student after another said, I don't usually like these types of movies, but I was really, really invested in what happened. Like this was a really great movie. Some people say, some of them said like, I, I immediately want to watch it again. And it's so fascinating because that's the kind of thing that you usually say with a movie like star Wars, where it's a whole other world. Like I mm-hmm. want to go back to that world. Yeah. And while Brooklyn is a period piece, which, so it is a little bit different than the world we live in. Like it's still reality. And there, and it's not like, it's not a, it's not a fairy tale type of mm-hmm. reality. It is still our reality with our issues and our problems. And yet these 18 and 19 year old students felt such a connection to this story. And, enjoyed spending so much time with these people that they some of them found themselves wanting to return to it which is something i can absolutely understand it's a a really marvelous movie in in every sense so uh listeners if you haven't seen it uh and it's a film that got you know it, it got some buzz at the time and it was and it was my favorite movie so my guess is listeners if they were going to see it uh they were they probably would have seen it by by then but uh but yeah, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah, you know, I just actually at the used bookstore. The uh, shout out to the Iliad uh, Bookshop in mm-hmm. uh, North Hollywood. Uh, one of my favorite used bookstores that I've ever been to anywhere in the country, actually. Yeah. And it's going strong. Uh, I think it's still yeah. hanging in there. Um, picked up the book, uh, Brooklyn, the novel. Mm. Uh, part of my long established habit of buying books and then putting them in a stack and never ever getting to them. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, But uh, I, I will get around to Brooklyn at some point. All right. uh, Next up for me (coughs) is a movie uh, directed by a duo uh, and their names are Helena Catet and Bruno Forzani. The movie's called let the corpses tan. Um, And uh, they made um, two movies that i haven't seen one called amer a-m-e-r and one called the strange color of your body's tears i think is oh what it's yes called. okay yeah okay i haven't seen those i now really want to because let the corpses stand is a very exciting and fun movie although that's not necessarily the right word because it's also uh, very very bloody <laughs> and the story to the extent that it really even matters <laughs> is that um 
there's this this uh artist lady and her lawyer husband or life partner or whatever um they live together in a seaside villa in rural uh italy i guess mm-hmm. um coastal italy um and they've allowed some friends to stay with them three of whom are actually uh armored car robbers and the whole reason they're hiding out there is because they have a, pl- a job planned in town mm-hmm. so they go in they kill a ton of people and rob this armored car and then they go back to this villa to hide out uh but the cops find out and the cops come to the villa and then the second two-thirds of the movie is just a, like a 24-hour shootout mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh there's more complications to it because there's a whole other character there's a writer and the his baby mama or whatever show up mm-hmm. and th- there's all these uh, a bunch of other people around uh but mostly the movie is just about sort of taking uh early 70s uh psychedelic exploitation type of movies you know um from that that time it's it's from that ver- that period that um uh, not to be like the hacky dude bro who looks up to Hunter S. Thompson, but that Hunter S. Thompson talked about like the early to mid seventies um, and the idea of the hippie dream sort of souring and becoming sure. something negative. And I feel like that's very much the milieu in, the, in which this takes place that like the drugs no longer are about freeing your mind. Right. They're taking on this, toxic uh viewpoint but also can still be very beautiful and that's the thing about let these corpses tan is that it's uh it's intentionally very repetitive it shows you the same things over and over again um it has it'll show you like a timestamp, and it'll show you a scene and then it'll show you the timestamp again that you just saw and then show you essentially the same things from another character's point of view it does Mm -hmm. that throughout um and often to very comic effect Uh, uh just the both the structure of the time stamps are are often comic and just the use of them because the movie is very very loud mm-hmm. but the time stamps are just silent black screen with the time on them and every time it would happen i would almost laugh because it was such a shock yeah. for there to be silence all of a sudden because the movie is so insanely loud um and there's one thing where there's like a big explosion and it's like, let's, I can't remember what time. Let's say it's 11, 10 PM. And it just does this thing with like eight different characters. Where it says 11, 10 PM, the reaction, 11, 10 PM, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> jumping around the entire villa. Um, uh, it's, it, it's a lot of fun. But what I was saying about the, the drugs and the psychedelic beauty is it's also occasionally just absolutely beautiful. There's a part after the explosion where a guy walks out of the little uh, room into the courtyard, the room he's been hiding into the courtyard and is surrounded by like the embers of the explosion that it almost makes him. And he's framed in such a way you don't see anything but the blackness and the embers. It's not like he's standing in some sort of like star field, uh, really, really beautiful stuff. And then there's also some beautiful stuff that is, just as violent there's a uh, dude's getting shot and there's sort of a imagine a uh, close-up of inside the body i guess of the mm. bullet like uh going in that looks like uh looks very psychedelic with like squirrels but it's like a bullet you know yeah, yeah. destroying his insides uh there's also a lot of um <clears throat> i mentioned exploitation before there's a, a lot of nudity um <clears throat> excuse me mostly female nudity but not just not only female nudity uh, and I don't know, uh, I, I, it's hard for me to say as I'm, 
as a straight man, what is considered exploitative or what is considered the male gaze, you know, sure. necessarily. But, uh, and I don't know, I often wonder, um, because one of the directors, it's, it's a directing duo, one of them is a woman, and I wonder, like, I feel like this, there's a lot of respect for the women here, but am I saying that because I know one of the directors is a woman, is a woman? Like it's, if I didn't know would I tough. see it that way. Uh, but there's like one of the most beautiful images in the movie. And this sounds very purient of me is like one of the, one of the criminals is like looking at, um, one of the young women uh, in the compound and there's this fantasy sequence. And I think the movie is intentionally unclear as to whether it's his fantasy sequence or her fantasy sequence mm-hmm. of him shooting all her clothes off. <laughs> it sounds very juvenile and very purient, <laughs> yeah. but it's actually, it's one of those beautiful segments of the movie. It's like so beautifully realized. This like with idea. a gun? You don't actually see the gun. The, the, okay. the camera's on her the whole time. You're hearing gunshots and pieces of her dress are being torn away with each one. Okay. And it's in kind of slow motion. And it's really, really like creative and innovative and, be- and beautiful. But it's also, like I said, it's very juvenile. Yeah, it's very if you, brilliant. But that, if that, you look at it from a different angle, it's like something out of a Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that. But that, I mean, that sort of walking that line and that sort of sense of humor you're talking about kind of sums up a lot of the movie for mm-hmm. me. Um, I, re- I really, really liked it uh, a lot. I saw it with my wife. She liked some of it, but I think um, was definitely more put off by the uh, buckets of bloodshed sure. <laughs> um, than I was. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm really glad that I, that I went and saw it. Um, yeah. It, okay. was at the, it was at the new art, which uh, was one of the theaters where movie pass still works for everything. Hey, all right. uh, so that was the last movie pass movie. I think I saw. Okay. Two things. Number one, I wanted uh, to talk briefly about Hunter S Thompson. Cause you mentioned him and he's been on my mind lately. Oddly uh-huh. enough. Uh, and two, David, I'm so sorry. I remembered another movie that I saw that I did not write down. Oh, well that works out. So, um, okay. But what I will say is that, uh, yeah. Um, I think I was watching, uh, while I was at the gym, I was watching, uh, some YouTube video where, uh, a series where they compare book to movie and they were talking about fear and loathing in Las Vegas. So it got me thinking okay. about, uh, got me thinking about Hunter S Thompson and it's just one of those things that, yeah, you mentioned that like dude bros think he is the, the bees knees. What I will say is that but it's a certain kind of like faux intellectual, a certain type. Yes. But he was a good writer when he Absolutely. was in the zone. I mean, it was, there's a there's a bit of of narration from you know I mean it's just the book but then it's read very wonderfully by Johnny Depp in the movie Fear and Loathing and it's some of the best writing I've oh, yeah. I, I've memorized it it's when he's talking about the wave yep I know you exactly know? what you're talking about because it's know? a beautiful sequence in yeah. the movie and just and it's just Johnny Depp is uh, really understands how to say it that to not overplay the cartoonish Raoul Duke cadence mm-hmm. uh and just saying you know that place where the f- where the wave finally broke and rolled back and it's like you would never think that the hunter s thompson that you would see the ridiculous over-the-top cartoon of a human being would write something like that but he was capable of that yeah. and uh it's it's one of those things where you wonder if if you'll pardon me a certain type of thompson fan if they would ever, if they were responding to that or they were responding to just his crazy ass way of living, you know, it makes yeah. me wonder, this is probably unfair of me. Uh-huh. It makes me wonder if they'd ever read anything uh-huh. of his or they just know <laughs> about him. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I um, think, yeah, there, I think there's been a lot of, uh, terrible writing and a lot of terrible 
posturing. Sure. And even just terrible stereotypes about writers that have come from Hunter S. Thompson that maybe does sometimes obscure the fact that he could be uh, really, really a a beautiful writer. All right. Yeah. Um, Okay. What's what's next for you? So I watched, I want to look up the director here. Directors, pardon me. Randall Lobb and Robert McCallum. I was uh, not in the mood to watch something of note. So I watched this documentary, uh, Power of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Now, um, I had I, already... I want to make, make clear. I'm, I would never, I'm not judging anything you watch, but I am sometimes flabbergasted. As I know, you have said to me like yeah. that you are sometimes weird about what I choose. I was on vacation in Catalina, and uh, for some reason, and I'll get to it later, uh, they wouldn't the good place wasn't streaming there. It was on Netflix, but it wasn't streaming there on Catalina. Whereas other Netflix stuff like this movie was, isn't that weird? That's weird. You're still in the U S yeah, I can't figure it out. But anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, it was honestly, it was something like I wanted something that would be vaguely interesting and I had seen that show, like the toys that made us, and they did an episode about He-Man that I thought was mildly interesting. And so I thought, I'm going to watch 10 minutes of this and see if it's any different at all. And it is, uh, partially tonally, because it engages in nostalgia, but not really. It's more just, here's what I like about it. And yes, I'm probably thinking too much about the film, but I, I appreciate how much work they they put into making this documentary, you know, even when they talk about the movie, like they go and they interview Dolph Lundgren and Franklin Jella and that sort of thing. Um, what I like about it is that it does, it does more than simply say, Hey, aren't these, weren't these toys neat? Mm-hmm. It acknowledges that behind every bit of pop culture that people are, every bit, every collection, uh, that somebody has that we would roll our eyes at. There is, often a team of people who are really engaging as, as much as they can with their own creativity. And so when you talk to the people who designed the characters, who came up with the characters, and then they had to come up with a comic book to help sell Mm -hmm. the toy line. Well, the, the comic book, they still needed a mythology. They still needed storylines. They still needed character types. Um, and they would draw from various things within culture, but also things within themselves. Uh, and they were just toys when it comes right down to it they were meant to sell and so part of it was what do we think kids are going to buy but it was more than that and they talk about you know when when they would years later when they would do conventions and such kids would come up and they would say hey i when i was a kid my parents fought all the time they were getting a divorce and i felt like i had no power at all mhm And then He-Man comes along and his whole thing is I have the power, like I have some control over my own life simply because I can do, you know, I have this giant sword. Now the person did not use a sword and swing it around, but, um, (laughs) cause that will give you a fair amount of power in certain situations. Uh, but it's, it's that kind of thing that you and I would laugh at it, but we, you and I have received emails from people who have said, Hey, the podcast kept me company at a very specific time in my life. And it's, this is just a dumb 
600 week old podcast. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think what, so yeah, it, the documentary is a complete trifle, but it's way, not, but it's not a half-assed trifle real quick. Okay. Of 600, did you see the comment? Someone pointed out, someone did the math and realized that episode six, six, six will be a Christmas episode. Yes, I did see that. We're going to have some fun with obviously. That. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously we're just talking cramp. We'll, we'll watch every, you know what? Here's what we're doing. There've been a lot of Krampus movies, okay. not just the theatrical one. Let's watch every Krampus movie and right. talk about them all. You're welcome in advance. We've got over a year to think about that. So, um, anyway, <laughs> but yeah, the movie, it's not that interesting and it's not vital, but it's a nice reminder that behind, like I said, behind everything, and I don't just mean like a specific toy line, a specific TV show, whatever it is, even individual figures and packaging, there's tremendous creativity that goes mm-hmm. behind it that could, could wind up meaning everything to a specific person as we roll our, our eyes at it. It's the same thing that makes that, that appeals to me about Comic-Con is when we go there right. and we see people dressed up as characters that I just, I, that, this seems like the most unimportant thing to me, but to you, it's everything. So it's, it was worth watching for that, for that reason. Like, as I said, I was going to watch the first 10 minutes, see if it was doing anything at all interesting with it. And it was, and it was enough to keep me watching for the rest of it. Um, I will say, uh, unsurprisingly, that's the movie I forgot, uh, about. So just putting that out there. All right. I watched, uh, uh, Oh, speaking of, Satan, I guess. <laughs> um, oh, good. It's 666. Uh, I watched uh, a, m- a movie from 1988 that uh, has a bad reputation, and I think probably deserves a bad reputation. It's uh, called The Seventh Sign oh, with Demi Moore and, and Michael Bean. now, right? Jurgen Jurgen probably. However you say Jürgen it. Jurgen Prochnov. Yeah, I like saw that. that a long time ago. Um, and uh, it's not that it's bad in the sense that it's poorly made. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, craft that goes into it. The set pieces I think are, uh, are well executed for the budget. It's, and I'm not even, uh, you know, I'm a complete non-believer, but I found the, what I guess you would style blasphemy of it. Um, sure. Like really intellectually dishonest, I think. Because I kept thinking of a much, much, much better movie from a couple years later called The Rapture. Oh, yeah. Um, starring Mimi Rogers and Will Patton um, <coughs> and, and David Duchovny, Duchovny yeah. uh, for a little while. Yeah. Um, spoilers for <laughs> The Rapture. Um, and the idea that the seventh sign is a movie about the biblical apocalypse, mm-hmm. but is also completely about humans figuring out a way around it, like a way to prevent it. Yeah. That seems so like that really turned me off. Like it seemed like, uh, it, like, and I don't even believe this stuff, but I was like, this seems like such egotistical, such human hubris. Oh yeah. That, that they're going to like the idea that you're going to figure out like it's a code you got to crack, you know, like this is some kind of heist movie. And you're going to figure out, yeah. Oh, if we do this and this, we can, uh, get around. We can yeah. find loopholes yeah. in the, in the we book can, of revelation. Uh, we can yeah. get into heaven through the air ducts or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, uh that, uh, uh I, I was like, uh, I, I got really bored by it because uh, I was like, this movie doesn't, 
isn't taking its own subject matter serious. It's how he felt about that movie Legion with our friend, very briefly, Doug Jones. Uh-huh. Did you see it? I uh, know. I never. It's saw horrible, it. horrible. Okay. And it's one of those things where and and uh, John Ca- John Carpenter's um, Oh Hell. What is it called? Is it called Oh Hell? Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Prince of Darkness. Yeah. yeah. No, oh Hell is that George Burns movie. <laughs> um, but uh, so, also, don't forget End of Days, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. and Kevin Pollock. Almost invariably with these movies, Stigmata, which I never saw. I did see Stigmata. It's it's not terrible, but. Um, you know what? I saw it in high school and I thought it wasn't <laughs> terrible, which means 36 year old me probably wouldn't like it or would love it. It'd be one of those two. Um, but, uh, this, they never think big enough. That's the problem. It's, this is the apocalypse. God is finally judging humanity and he's going to wipe us all out in the most convoluted and really ineffectual way possible. Yeah. And that's, what's so great about the rapture is it takes it seriously. Even though so. I think the movie itself is not, you know the movie had the movie itself has problems with with the god of the bible the sure, rapture sure you know it's it challenges some of these things yeah. but it does so in a way that takes them seriously and yeah. that's what makes it such an incredibly powerful movie uh i really need to watch the rapture again <laughs> it's it is a really great movie i like it in for so many reasons but yeah it's it, like when you look at, at the seventh sign and, and the writers and they're trying to figure out how, how can we get our characters around this you want to say fellas <laughs> you know that this is the attitude that's going to bring this on right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's like perhaps if we built a tower you know all the way to heaven there like, we go. oh there's precedent for this um oh that's funny yeah <laughs> um all right then it, uh i'll move back to you but real quick speaking of movies i need to rewatch again i was tweeting okay. about this the other night maybe last night I've decided a little over a year after I first saw it, I think I was way too hard on Ingrid goes West. Okay. Did you ever see it? No, I didn't. I, I yeah. know people, uh, people are very complimentary of the acting. Um, and it's terrific. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people like it. Our, uh, our, I was going to say friend of the podcast. He's never been on the podcast, but our friend Peter Serretta from slash film, mm-hmm. uh, put it on his top 10 of the, li- uh, of the year last yeah. year. And I, it, I was so incensed by the ending, which I still haven't forgiven the movie for the ending. I okay. really hate the way it ends, but I'll say I went up to Joshua tree last weekend mm-hmm. and I, so you haven't seen the movie. I forget. So, um, yeah, it, it takes place among this sort of LA, like Venice to Coachella to Joshua tree type of milieu. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I really gave the movie credit for how incredibly, spot on it is as a satire nice and the fact because it, it's occurred to me over the years since i've seen it that i'll be at a party or a cafe or a bar or something and be looking around and being like man there's a lot of Inger goes Inger goes west types in here <laughs> like it's become a yeah. a, a mental shorthand for me and i think that speaks to the power of the movie yeah um and so i've decided to forgive the movie somewhat for an ending yeah. that I think is uh, disrespectful of the character that it's invested so much time in okay. and say it's a better movie than I gave it credit for. So Mia culpa okay. uh, for my Ingrid goes West hatred last year. Okay. Um, I do not think that a year from now I'm going to like Shane Black's the predator anymore than I do. All right. So David, okay, I trust that you know what I mean when I say that there is a difference between clever and smart. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Usually they go together, but not always. And I'm a fan of Shane Black, but he's, and usually he is clever and smart. 
Whereas I think in the predator, uh, I think he's very interested in being clever in his dialogue and in his character interactions and that sort of thing, uh, that I think he forgets to be smart. Uh, especially because, you know, the, the predator movies are not meant to be remarkably complex narratively. In fact, they're very simple. Um, the first one probably being the most complex because, oh, you think it's one thing, yeah. but then it's another. But then w- once it's that other thing, we're, we're done. Uh, then it's just a survival tale, basically. Um, whereas this, this movie really changes the, the mythos, and it's hard to have a complex mythology uh, while also trying to be cute and clever in your in your dialogue and it winds up being not remarkable that first predator and i'd say even the second one um there are moments when it's frightening when it's genuinely scary or at least tense this movie was never tense uh and and i just and it's it's unfortunate because I do think that the the cast is is solid and has some good chemistry. The lead actor Boyd Holbrook, he does what he can. He's kind of a kind of a boring character because he's sort of the straight man, but he still has his his clever asides and such. But the rest of the cast, I think, does a great job. And I would say, um, oh shoot, Sterling K. Brown is his uh-huh. name, right? St. Louis and Sterling K. Brown. Oh, okay. Uh, he is marvelous. He's a, if there is a villain, it is him, and he is a lot of fun. And he definitely feels like he—he's just—he's a good fit with the Shane Black uh, cadence. But the rest of the time, it just feels—it almost feels like a fan film. At other times, it feels way too small. Uh, and intimate it feels like i don't know it's hard to explain it it has its moments here and there of course but it's it's also the action sequences aren't remarkably well done um there's a character this is something that i've heard other people talk about and it certainly uh applies to me as well which is people say in certain action sequences there is a major character who dies very quickly in the midst of a chaotic sequence, but you don't realize he dies. You just see that something we cut to him so fast and then something happens. And then we are able to surmise that he has died because we don't see him again. And so I was like, okay, I guess that thing that happened was his death. Seems like a rather major character for that to happen. Um, and it just, it's, it's stuff like that. And it, it really was, I say genuinely unsatisfying. There are moments that I liked, but by and large, I'd say I didn't like it. All right. Um, I saw, uh, all right, moving on to another, uh, not horror movie, but kind of horror movie. Sure. I saw Lizzie, which is the movie in which Chloe Savini plays Lizzie Borden. Um, uh, and Kristen Stewart plays, uh, the Borden family maid, uh, and, it is, you know, it's a. Uh, I would I would call it speculative fiction. Sure. Uh, you know, because um, we don't actually know for sure that Lizzie Borden did kill her family because she mm-hmm. was acquitted of it. She wasn't right. found guilty. Everyone just assumes that she did it. Right. Um, uh, 
and so this movie uh i'll say it's sort of it sort of toys with you a little bit about saying like, well, maybe she didn't do it. Uh, but no, in the movie, she definitely does yeah. it. Um, and the, the movie very, uh, I think I've read some of the people have problems with this, but I think I like the way that it, it is intentionally told out of chronological order so that the killings themselves become the climax, right. even though a large part of the story is the trial. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, I like that approach, but what I really like is not any of the real plot stuff. It's some of the character stuff and most of the character relation stuff that we, the, the movie kind of puts us in Lizzie's shoes and sees how much her, her father played by Jamie Sheridan. Do you know the character? Oh, yeah, Jamie yeah. Sheridan. Yeah. I always think of him as the vice president from Homeland, but you didn't watch Homeland. So I don't know what you think of him as he was in spotlight. I, th- I think of him first as uh, Randall flag in the stand. Oh, that's right. That was him. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a very reliable. He was in uh, the ice storm. Uh, oh, I haven't seen that in so long. And yeah, he's just a very reliable actor. Yeah. And so you've got, uh, so you're in, Chloe Savini's shoes, Lizzie Borden's shoes. You're seeing how she's treated as a quote unquote old maid. Um, uh, even though she, I mean, she, I, I guess by 1892 standards, she was 32 years old and still lived oh. with her parents. I guess that's all considered. over. <laughs> yeah. But her sister was also a quote unquote old maid. Her sister's played by Kim Dickens. Oh, nice. Uh, and then her stepmother is played, um, by Fiona Shaw. Oh, I won't oh that's a great cast. Uh, and her uncle is played by Dennis O'Hare. Um, who I can't place immediately. Uh, oh, maybe because he's more of a TV actor. Um, cause he was on true blood and then he's a part of the American horror story sort of, uh, um, uh, cast. He's like the American Stephen Delane in the way he looks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if that helps at all. Okay. Um, yeah. Got him. Uh, am it. I right in my description, my physical description? That's, of that's very close. <laughs> uh, yeah, he plays the uncle and then you've got, um, uh, and now I'm drawing a blank on another TV character actor who was on scandal, uh, plays the family lawyer. Um, damn, forgetting his name. Uh, but you say you've got this great cast, but again, what I wanted to get back to is that you're seeing you're, you're, you're experiencing this poor treatment. You're experiencing the way that the Dennis O'Hare characters, the uncle is trying to edge in on the inheritance. Mm-hmm. And you're also experiencing the blossoming of these new feelings that she has for the maid, right. Kristen Stewart. Um, <laughs> uh, all at the same time. And so the movie is very tactile even though it's often very still and quiet mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and, and very subjective. And yet I think wisely it sort of swerves near the end away from making the killings seem justifiable, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, in the, the sense that this is a very feminist tell, you know, retelling of these yeah. issues, there is that temptation to say like, well, look at what this family and their archaic rules and the society that said that she, because she was unmarried and because she was interested in the theater and right. because she had, uh, some sort of, uh, epilepsy or something that like, look at the way she was kept down. Who can blame her would be like yeah. one way to say this, but then the movie does not steer away. Once it finally gets to the murders, does not steer away from how fucking horrifying yeah. and terribly bloody, uh, they are. And I think does st- 
do, I think, a, a very smart sort of quick turn at the end where suddenly you're not in her shoes anymore and you're looking at her and you're like, oh, like, I was with you, but, yeah. you know, not like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's a, I don't think the movie's getting great reviews, but I think it's much better uh, than um, people are giving it credit for. And mostly, a lot, large part is because of this terrific cast. Yeah. Uh, and because you've got uh, this director, uh, Craig William McNeil or something is his name. Uh, yeah, Craig William McNeil, um, very much bringing uh, a sort of gothic horror, haunted house type of horror mm-hmm. aesthetic to a movie that's not really a horror movie. Yeah. But there's a lot of tension. In it. Nice. All right. Uh, what's next for you? All right. Next for me is Harold Cronk. Sorry, that's his name. Harold Cronk's Unbroken Path to Redemption. Uh, we talked about this, I think, in the uh, fall movie preview. So in 2014, there's Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, which uh, ended with uh, Louis Zamperini's uh, release from a Japanese POW camp. Um, and, you know, a lot of people that know the full story know that he that he went back home and was dealing understandably with some very heavy PTSD and then started drinking to try to battle that and then became a fairly uh, abusive husband. And then, uh, you know, we, uh, we Christians know that he then went to like a Billy Graham, a couple Billy Graham revivals and, uh, and then sobered up and became actually a very, uh, productive member of uh, society and that sort of thing. And so, um, and I'll say this, that when you, if I've been reading other reviews and there are, they are negative reviews and understandably so it's not a great movie by any stretch, but, um, but it does frustrate me that when I recognize that pure flicks made this film and Uh, thus, and thus people can't divorce that from their, their knowledge of, of the film or from their opinion. uh, Like me with, uh, the corpses tan, not being able to divorce. Well, that's what I was saying, yeah, right? That, like, that's true. Uh, saying this is a female filmmaker, so no. this somehow seems less exploitative. Yeah, it's, somehow. <clears throat> and that, so, like, I look at—I've been looking at these reviews, and they say they say, "Oh, the Christians got all up in arms that Angelina Jolie's movie like stopped at this moment, like before he became a Christian." It's like, okay, well, slow down. What I like, what frustrated me was not, "Oh no, I wanted to see a conversion scene." I've seen plenty, all right, <laughs> in movies, and I never. I'm never convinced by them, but what bothered me is that my boy. <laughs> exactly. That's what I liked. You know what? He's not, I'm not buying it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, what bothered me is that the idea that like his is a story of heroism and it's a story of survival, but as in life, there, there is no official happily ever after. Like you have to work for that. And to, and something that bothers me about world war two in general is the sweeping, uh, under the rug of the idea of PTSD. They're like, Oh no, we were fighting Nazis. They were evil. So obviously right, it's a good war. It's a good war. Right. So when the guys came back, obviously they were just, they were, they could be happy that they were on the side of right. And Louis Zamperini, like his story was his 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 story during the war was very impactful. But of course, it's going to have an impact on him afterwards. He's going to carry that with him because there are so many elements to it. And so that is why I was bummed out that Angelina Jolie stopped that is because we didn't get to see 
in the same way that I was bummed when 12 Years a Slave ended when it did, because there's more to the story that I would really have wanted to see. But anyway, so this movie picks up where that movie leaves off, and it has it has its moments. It's it is a powerful story, and I like that the that the filmmaker does not shy away from the constant drinking. You know, something that has bothered me about Christian films is that they they're like, we need to show somebody at rock bottom. It's like, all right, but it, it has to be PG, right. you know. And this is that, but like the the performance and and the the alcoholism and the the abuse and the paranoia and all of this stuff and the revenge plot to like go back to Japan and like possibly kill some of the guards that you know it was it's all there and and I do like that they uh, are willing to go with that um, and then the character also has nightmares about his experiences and he occasionally has hallucinations. And it's hard to know because he's drunk all the time. So at any moment, this thing, ha- you know, you will start to see these visions like, well, he probably passed out and is now seeing this stuff. There's one in particular, and I mentioned it in my review, that is really effective where he has passed out on his bed and his and his arm is hanging down just like an inch from his this hardwood floor. And the camera just like pans down and just holds on that. And then you start to see water come in from b- below the floorboards mm. and start to like fill the room. And then a shark fin comes out of it, like all the way out of oh, it. Cool. And it touches his hand and he freaks out and it's very jarring. And it's little stuff like the water didn't come in from out of frame. It came from under the floorboards. And then a shark fin comes out of one inch of water. It's a little special effect. And it really, really worked for me. Um, Unfortunately, the, you know, it looks like the essence of the 1940s. Everything is so, like, it's like they smeared apple pie on the lens. (laughs) Like, it was just, it it has that quality to it. Um, The performances are are fine. The lead performance, he he does, in in retrospect, thinking back on it, I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't praise him a lot in, in my review, but I actually think his performance is, is, is pretty good. He doesn't have the intensity of Jack O'Connell from the first film. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a serviceable film. Uh, and I think the power of the story still comes through. And I think that Kronk who previously had done Harold, uh, uh, uh had done, um, God's not dead. Oh, wow. and God's not dead Two movies that, as you know, I am not a fan of, uh-huh. uh, but he does this film and it's definitely a step up. It's in the world of Christian film. It's pretty good. Okay. Um, in the world of normal films, it's fine uh-huh. at best. Um, but the, but you're still getting, you're still getting the story and, you know, of course, once the faith stuff shows up, I think it's done fairly ham-fistedly, which is, unex- you know, not not unexpected. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, I'm happy I saw it. In the end, I just wish that I just wish that Angelina Jolie had incorporated this stuff into her film. Make it thir- make it 30 minutes longer. Like, yeah, you know. OK, I, di- I didn't like Unbroken very much. I didn't it- I didn't like it that much either. But I do think that if this stuff had been in it, I think we would have seen more of an arc to the okay. character. And, you know, Roger Deakin shot it. And it's right. And I remember yeah, that the first film is really gorgeous looking. And I think the performances are good. I just feel like they didn't it's just a, it's a pure tale of survival, which is not bad, but it also doesn't give you much to latch on to. But anyway, okay. Sorry. <clears throat> All right. Um, 
last movie for me. Uh, this is one that I get the impression is very divisive. Count me in the camp of fully understanding and sympathizing with the people who don't like it and yet kind of loving it. Uh, it's out this weekend. It's called Assassination Nation. Okay. Um, and this is a... Okay, I'll address some of the complaints about it. It's ugly. Uh, I don't mean to look at. It's, it, it's, it takes a very ugly view of humanity. Okay. It's probably too long it's overstuffed it doesn't know what it wants to be and keeps changing oh it's also very strident uh when it comes to its messaging all what of these whatever that might be <laughs> yeah exactly all these things are true and yet i kind of love the movies go for brokenness so much um and love that the movie doesn't care if you hate it i think is something that is very mm-hmm. important to me because it's a satire, except it's not very funny. It's often very sad mm-hmm. and often very disturbing. Uh, and the premise is it's just a, a, a small town, and over the course of the movie, there's a there's a hacker who is releasing people's information, their texts, okay. their search histories, and their images and stuff. And as the movie goes on, more and more people in the town um, get their stuff released, and it sort of brings out the worst in people. It's like a slightly more plausible, needful things. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> only slightly though, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still kind of over the top. Okay. Um, uh, cause eventually you've got like, you know, Joel McHale wearing a skull mask and, you know, trying to lynch people. Um, oh boy. All right. Um, it also, the movie, this is something that I think probably rubs people the wrong way and I don't know how to feel about it. The movie opens with a series of trigger warnings that it says trigger warnings and then says things like, murder attempted rape accompanied by clips that you will later see in the movie and so it's on the one hand it's very it seems like tongue-in-cheek yeah. the way they're doing the trigger warnings but also once you see the movie it's like yeah kind of like this movie's pretty fucking intense even yeah. though it's a satire um uh the main characters are these four girls who are uh high schoolers who are best friends um and who end up becoming uh through a series of um uh, leaks and also some lies and some misunderstandings. They become sort of the target of the town's wrath hmm. after all this stuff comes out. Um, and uh, it, it's again, like I said, it's a satire, but it's also, I think part of it is pointing out that we've kind of satired ourselves and it's sad. Like w- the internet or whatever, the way it's like knocked down barriers and uh, allowed for anonymity and all these things has has already brought the worst of us to the surface in so many ways mm-hmm. that you couldn't you can't really make it funny. So when there's like I said, attempted rapes or there's like slut shaming is something that happens a lot in this movie. It's not played for shock or outrage. It's played kind of pretty much straightforward and that makes it really unpleasant in a lot of ways to sit through but by design which is why Mm -hmm. i say that i understand why people hate it i really kind of love the movie's dedication um it would be a hard movie for me to sit through again at an hour and 50 minutes it is a lot of movie for how intense it is yeah um but there's also some really great music some really great um there's a uh, parts near the beginning where the scene is sort of it's a s- scope frame but 
it's divided into three so sometimes you're seeing one image just with lines down it but sometimes you're seeing three different images and it's hmm. roughly the shape of like an iphone so you're no. seeing like different people partying or screaming or riling people up or all these sort of different things happening at once uh with this kind of uh sludgy sort of like uh post-industrial like electronic music uh it's i think it's really it seems to have been made with a lot of gusto uh like i said go for broke (laughs) yeah um and it's uh it's one of those movies where it's like by the end i'm like well the director Sam Levinson, he did it. He, like, <laughs> this is the movie he set out to make, and he goddamn well made this movie. And I kind of have to respect it for that. I yeah. don't, find, I don't see myself watching it again anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people will hate it, and I think that's kind of unfortunate because I think the movie deserves some credit just for, uh, existing. (laughs) That's, that's honestly how I feel about mother, which is a movie that I know I like more than you do, but you know, I sure. I feel like Aronofsky's opinion of religion and that sort of thing. Just like, okay, this is, I wish we could have a conversation, but at the same time, you don't see movies like that very often. And at that point, at this point, I'm just happy that I'm seeing something notably different. Yeah. Uh, so like I kind of, there's some, I feel like audacity automatically takes a movie to like a B minus for me. Like, I mean, from up from an F. Oh, sure. 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 Know? Yeah. 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 But then, you know, I also, I also, you want, I want to, um, make the, you, I guess, uh, be straightforward about like I was in the elevator on the way down from the screening with a couple of other critics who had just been in the movie, both of whom were women mm. and who were kind of saying like, yeah, that stuff was a little too real. Like I don't need, you know, yeah. it's, it's easy for me, I guess, to sit back and say, well, I really appreciate the dedication to make sure. that so harrowing when I'm at a remove from it. You know what I mean? Where someone who has actually been victimized by the idea that you never know, that the guy, uh, the guy following you in his car or whatever might be just obnoxious or he might literally want to kill you for turning him down or because he, uh, hates that you're, uh, the promiscuous or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like I've never actually experienced that. So like, I need to, I guess I just wanted to address that, uh, that I overheard these reactions and it got me thinking, which then brings up this idea that when you're dealing with movies that are like a satire, when a satire starts to become real in certain ways, you're like, okay, well, hang on now. Well, I don't know what you're doing. Well, I guess that's a big part of what you said. Like it doesn't really seem to know what it's doing at all, at all times or from one scene to the next. And it definitely becomes, a different movie more than once. Yeah. Uh, um, the ending is pretty nuts. <laughs> this does give me the opportunity to once again, talk about one of my favorite, uh, episodes and scenes from the show communities because Joel McHale was in this film uh-huh. and there's a, there's, and I've said this line on the, on the show before, but I, I love it. Uh, and, uh, a hacker is going to leak everybody's emails and so he eventually does. And so the primary group is hanging out and they 
very quickly reveal that they just read everybody. They all <laughs> read each other's emails and they're just angry at each other. And at one point, Keith David said, oh, is, is referencing uh, Jeff Winger. That's Joel McHale. And he goes, he goes, did you guys read his, his email? He writes to astronauts. <laughs> and then he, goes, he goes, they're national heroes. And Keith David goes, yes, they are. Leave them alone. <laughs> just, oh, it's marvelous. Um, but uh, okay. So, uh, all right. Are we moving on? Uh, yeah. You okay. got one more movie, right? Yeah. It is a rewatch and it's a movie I haven't seen in a very long time, which is, is Star Wars. Huh? Uh, no, I've, you know, what's weird, uh, in mentioning that you hadn't seen it in, in 20 plus years is that I feel like for an, a long time in my life, watching Star Wars was not a conscious decision. I just kind of found myself watching sure. Star Wars on a regular basis. Uh, but now that I think about it, because it's just so saturated in our culture, I don't remember the last time I watched Star Wars or Empire or anything like that. I could tell you a lot about them because yeah. I grew up with them and just culture tells you this stuff. But yeah, I I don't actually know the last time I saw it. Yeah, I watched them so much as a kid that I think, like, I didn't even really think about, like, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi because I had sure. them all in one tape, which is yeah. like, this was Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, it wasn't until I got older that I really started to think about, like, oh, there was three years in between these yeah. movies. As uh, there should be now, by the way. Um, sure. So, uh, yeah, I rewatched uh, Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It recently showed up on Netflix, and I thought, oh, this is something I can watch while I'm uh, at the gym. And by the way, it really helped. Uh, that movie <laughs> really rocks. Yeah. And uh, got me uh, working a little bit harder. But, um, and I started at the gym, and then I finished it on my own uh, later. And uh, it is a film that was in both of our tops ten that year. Yeah. Uh, understandably so. It is absolutely marvelous it is this is going to sound weird for a movie like this but like it is filmmaking at its peak it is every he utilizes every tool uh to make the film he's going to make and it is it's a world similar to ours but completely different the rules aren't the same and yet you feel like you understand them completely as you go uh and that it all makes a very specific type of sense um and I, I, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of Hot Fuzz, and Shaun of the Dead is great, but I think this is his best film from a filmmaking standpoint. I think he's just, again, like I think he's clearly inspired by the material and rises to that level. I don't think he, I don't think as he was looking at those at those comics, I don't think he was thinking in terms of limitation. I think Edgar Wright was thinking, all right, we're going to realize this as uh-huh. fully as is possible. And it really shows. And it's just a, a ton of fun. And I think I forgot how much fun it is. It's so funny, too. Yeah, the, hilarious. Uh, well, <laughs> that's actually hilarious. It's actually hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite lines of the movie. <laughs> and it was like, I think that was kind of the first, like, the first time I started to realize, like, oh, Chris Evans is not just, like... I mean, I liked him in like cellular. Cellular, yeah, yeah. But like seeing, seeing him be funny. Like he hadn't really had a chance to be funny before. Well, I mean, that. He's, had he? he's funny in Fantastic Four. Oh, I never but seen. It's, those it's a very specific type of funny. Yeah, you I, know. I have not seen those movies. I mean, that's what. Yeah, yeah. But like Brandon Routh is is very amusing <laughs> in it, and just. <laughs> and and that on top of it, so yeah, it's it's lively, it's funny, 
it's imaginative and the action is great on top of everything else. Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, like the choreography is marvelous. And what's strange is that Michael Sarah isn't doing anything remarkably different in the film than he does in other films, but whatever he's just, he's just like tightening it up a little bit and it's, it feels like a different, a different performance from him. And I can't put my finger quite on why. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I adore the movie. All right, let's move on to TV. Yeah. You said you got four, so you do two. I'll do one. You do okay. two. So I watched season two of the good place and I won't spend a lot of time on this because you can go over to more than one lesson right now and listen to me talk about it with my friend, Tyler Stracely, who wrote an episode in season two. And, uh, yeah, um, I'm a, I was a big fan of season one. Like many others, I didn't know where it could go uh-huh. after that. And when you get through se- through episode one of season two, you're like, this season might not be great. It feels like it could be really repetitive. Uh, but then by really expanding the character of Michael, which is Ted Danson's character, yeah. they, they open up the whole, the whole world. And yeah. I think it works really well. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if you watched the Emmys the other night. I'm guessing no, you I didn't did watch not. the Emmys. Uh, so Ted Danson was nominated for best lead actor. If that had been for season one, I would have been like, come on, that's a supporting role. But at yeah. season two, it's like, yeah, he's one of the leads of the oh, show. Oh, no question. Sure. And, yeah. and in season <laughs> one, like he is a lot of fun, but it's, it is, he's limited to a very specific set of emotions. Whereas yeah. here, like, you know, when he has a midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it, he's yeah. so much fun. But yes, yeah, so I think my can, favorite though is Darcy Carden as uh, uh, Janet. She is. I enjoy her quite a bit, especially when she's like, like bad evil Janet or bad (laughs) Janet or whatever. Um, I like that quite a bit, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is a, a really great show. Uh, and I say this on the more than one lesson episode that like, to me, it's up there with a show like Futurama in that it is remarkably smart Uh because they're constantly, it's like a funny lost, you know, uh, where they are building this world and there are rules to it and they have to constantly figure out those rules and express them, but also have to be funny in doing it. Yeah. Explaining it. And, and it's, and it's also a lot of, you know, uh, my friend Tyler was talking about how much fun it can be to write for the show because it allows you the writer to comment on just stuff you see in life and like, (laughs) how would we look at it? How would like demons or, or eternal beings, how would they look at it? And so it's stuff like in, in episode one, when Ted Danson is talking to his boss, Sean, uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is fun. And he just says, he goes, Oh no, we're going to do a whole new thing. We're going to keep it. You know, we're, we're going to make sure that they're just never quite happy. He goes, the only coffee they're going to have is from those little pots. (laughs) It'll be terrible. <laughs> just, and That's a uh, Mark Evan Jackson. Mark Evan Jackson. Yeah. Yes, he was. You haven't watched Glow, right? I watched the first season. But okay, I haven't watched the right. second. So he's in an episode of the second. He plays okay. uh, uh, Bash's mom is played by Elizabeth Perkins, right? Is that right? I think so. Yes. So her butler. Okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. He's played by Mark Evan Jackson, and he yeah. has a really great like. Bash shows up at his house or at his mom's house, and the Mark Evan Jackson is like, "Oh, I thought you were the dim sum." And then they have a nice like, really kind of emotional scene hmm. that goes on for a while, and then Mark Evan Jackson is like, 
where is that dim sum? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, all right, what's uh, what's next? I feel like I had something. Oh yeah, the other one of my favorite uh, visual gags from season two is when they're in the bad place and the post is the train station is for Pirates of the Caribbean six, the haunted crow's nest or whatever. Now playing everywhere forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I watched season five at this point of BoJack Horseman. Um, so yeah, the reason that I don't have... We, it's been two weeks since we've done one of these. Three, three weeks. weeks. And the reason I only have a handful of uh, movies you is because watch I watched it. entire seasons of television. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I watched uh, season five of BoJack Horseman. And... Uh, it's very good. But here's the thing. What I will say about this season is what I said about season four, which is what I said about season three and two and one, which is when it is dealing with personal, whether it be mental illness or someone dealing with their own demons or whatever it is, it is spot on. It is razor sharp and the the la- you know you choke on the laughter but you are laughing uh right before you get a gut punch mm-hmm. um and it's very effective uh but the show clearly and understandably you know we're dealing with you know we're in the midst of uh the me too movement and so bojack horseman deals with hollywood and and so it is going to it is going to incorporate that but for what and maybe it's just because i tend not to agree with its politics but i don't think it's i don't think it's that because you know what what are the politics behind if you live in Hollywood what's the what are the politics behind the Me Too movement it's like yeah someone did something shitty get him out of here <laughs> you know uh, and so so I don't think it's that um, I just think that like as sharp and specific as it is when dealing with individuals that is as clunky and blunt and general as huh. it is when dealing with issues and there'll be often there'll be like an entire episode that is about this thing. And it's like, Oh geez, like, come on. Like I can get a lot more incisive, uh, commentary on Twitter, you know? And it just, and it's, and it's frustrating. And even when they bring it in and, and have it relate to the characters themselves, it never seems like it fits a hundred percent as much as when they are again dealing with a person's like if they start with the person's individual flaws and then have those uh branch out and deal with something larger that's fine as long as they're and you can it's it's what we've said a billion times it's it's like kind of the it's almost the theme of this entire podcast which is if you get specific oddly enough you get more general or you can get more More relatable or universal yeah whereas if you try to be broad uh, you're actually going to, people are going to have less idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's the thing is even when the show is doing well, it's doing well in a way that is not that different than what it's done before. And I guess maybe that's the idea is it's exploring the cyclical nature of a person's flaws and how they could be doing well. And then they just come right back around and the stuff, their, their wounds will cause them to fall into a different pit or whatever. So it, it's doing that very well. Um, but yeah, I do find myself wondering when season six comes along, will I watch it? Because I hate to say it. I, I've mm. seen it. I've seen it five times now. So even when it's effective and it ran, it's really like touching. 
it's not touching in any particular, particularly new way within mm-hmm. the show. So I still like it. It's still a good show, but yeah, you've watched it for five years. <laughs> right. And, and I, and four really had some good stuff in it. Um, but this time it, it had good stuff in, in this as well. It does an entire episode and it's taking risks. It does an entire episode of him just giving his mother's eulogy for 30 minutes. And he's clearly like going off on this tangent on mm-hmm. that tangent. And it's a really wonderful bit of voice acting from Will Arnett. Uh, so like that's that's really good, and they're doing something new there. And who was Wendy Malick, his mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've and seen she was a lot couple of episodes. I, I really like Wendy Malick. And our friend uh, Paul F. Tompkins plays Mr. Peanut Butter, uh-huh. and he's great and finds different play, different places to go with that character. So again, like they still do some good stuff, and it's still extremely watchable and often quite entertaining. It's just not. It's you know I was just talking about how. Hey, Mother is cer- was certainly different. Mm-hmm. And while I don't think I officially like Mother as much as I like BoJack Horseman, I find Mother so much more invigorating than I do the fifth season of BoJack Horseman, where even within the, even w- within the newer stuff that they do or the risks that they take, it's still fairly safe within the tone of the show. All right. Uh, my one TV show that I'll mention, uh, the deuce is back on HBO. Okay. Um, which is the, uh, um, David Simon show about the sort of, uh, mainstreaming of pornography is kind of Mm -hmm. the, the main thing it's about. It covers a lot of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, first off, I'll address that. Uh, obviously you mentioned the me too movement and obviously some, creepy stuff about James Franco has come out. Sure. And so having a movie that or a movie, a TV show that has two James Franco's, um, <laughs> is definitely hard to ignore. Um, I'll also mention not now, uh, you'll hear in the upcoming TIFF wrap up episode we do with our friend, Angie Han, um, me talk about how bad accents don't bother me. Sure. But I know they bother some people. Um, my wife is almost ready to stop watching the deuce this season because the wigs are so bad Sure, <laughs> and they are bad. But yeah. I, th- again, that's something that I usually I'm able to look past, but they are bad because, um, between the first season, and the second season, something like five and a half years has passed on the show. Mm. And so I guess they're trying to show the passage of time by like, Hey, look, everyone has different hair now. Um, yeah. and so there's, uh, there's some really bad. So one of the James Franco's has a wig. Uh, the other one doesn't, uh, good James Franco has a wig, bad James Franco doesn't. Um, uh, but I, I'm, I, I really do st- still think that it's, uh, a good show in that it's taking a sleazy milieu and I think approaching it in a way that I don't even, even someone like David Simon, maybe 15 years ago, speaking of me too, and other just sort of the rise of, you know, the, these newer, uh, not newer, but more prominent brands of feminism that we've seen, like the women's march and stuff, like the idea of telling this story, uh, in, in, in such a way that these, these, these women who were objectified and marginalized by being prostitutes or adult film stars or whatever. Um, or at least we tend to have long tended to see them that way to have them be equal. And sometimes, uh, uh, more, 
uh, more forward protagonist in the story mm-hmm. is a really interesting way to to tell it. Um, and especially now, one of the things that the that the show is getting into in the second season is that as when pornography uh you know was in filmed pornography in terms of uh, in in the in the way of you know the skin flicks showing at movie theaters in times square and stuff when that sort of stuff was still uh more uh what's what i'm looking for uh contraband or whatever sure. the actresses were often prostitutes mm-hmm. that were hired just like they would be hired for any other genre and filmed uh once it becomes legal you're seeing because a lot of the characters are pimps and you're seeing pimps lose power because women are coming to town specifically to be porn actresses, which is not illegal and therefore they don't need the pimps. And so you're seeing these characters, you're seeing basically this way of life die off in a way that is, you're not exactly sad that it's dying off because they're, you know, predators, (laughs) but also these are the characters on the show and you, and you're seeing them sort of try to adjust to the fact that a lot of the, um, you know, uh, a lot of the new blood or new meat, I guess in this, uh, in this scene doesn't need them anymore. Uh, it's fascinating to look at. Maggie Gyllenhaal is terrific uh, Mm. as usual. David Krumholtz. Hey, all right. Who was in the first season. I don't know. If you followed David Krumholtz, not particularly, no. So he had uh, apparently I looked this up. He had like a thyroid issue where he, for a couple years there, was really big. Yeah. Um, and in the first season he was very big, mm-hmm. and then I guess he got the thyroid issue fixed and is now skinny David Krumholtz again, mm-hmm. um, which in real life is alarming that it happened so quick, yeah. but weirdly helps sell the five and a half year sure. <laughs> time passage because he's actually like. In the five, in the time in between, his characters gotten married, and so that they've written in this storyline where his wife is encouraged, keeping him on a healthy diet, mm. and so it's like a little, like, it's like a running gag that he's like eating like boiled chicken and yeah. like wants French fries, but can't have French fries. <laughs> it's uh, it's fun, but I love David Krumholtz. Yeah, always absolutely. Have. Um, all right, so yeah, I uh, feel like he would do. V- very well on a show like that like his, yeah. his general persona seems like is he a producer is his character a producer he's a he's a porn director okay. who has um he clearly has a love for cinema his like office has like a jules and jim poster <laughs> yeah. in it but he makes like really straightforward like because <laughs> maggie gyllenhaal's character who's getting into porn directing she started as a prostitute in the first season and then mm-hmm. is getting into directing movies is sort of going in this more uh I don't want to say avant-garde, but more yeah. uh, artistically minded way of making porn. Sure. And he's, uh, and, and he's sort of steering her away from it. Cause that's not how he works, which is funny because he's got, you know, <laughs> yeah. Francois Truffaut and stuff, uh, in his, in his office. Anyway, uh, you've got two more TV shows. I do. Uh, so yeah, season two of Ozark, uh, posted on Netflix. Uh, I liked the first season. Just didn't necessarily love it. It felt, very Breaking Bad. It felt like a sh- one of those shows that would not exist if Breaking Bad had not Is been it, such a, such a success. Here's what I've surmised. Well, you know, you said you liked it, but I've heard it sort of hinted at that if like if Sons of Anarchy is Sopranos for dumb people, Ozark is Breaking Bad for dumb people. <laughs> I guess so. It's <laughs> I, it's it never struck me as that particularly dumb. It's just so Breaking dr- Bad is. I mean, I love Breaking Bad, but it was often pretty not, dumb too. Yeah, I know that's. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. That's like a 
difference between a C plus and a C, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's still like, everybody's still fully committed. And I do think that like casting Jason Bateman in that lead role is what is making and Laura Linney as his wife. They're both great, but like Jason Bateman has such a specific on-screen persona where he can be kind of a douchebag, kind of smarmy, but there's also a core of of decency. Like uh-huh. you know, he knows what is right, and maybe is making deals with himself. It's hard to know. Um, and I will say that season two, I think having just accepted what they're the tone they're going for season two um feels to me a bit more i don't know i guess it's both seasons are are pretty pulpy but i think i was just able to accept it as like rural noir a little Uh bit more uh in the second one and uh and just the tone of it, it's a very, you know, it's a very blue tinted show, um, with, uh, people, I think, you know what, I honestly, I think what it might be is that the, the level, like the type of criminal organization they were dealing with in the first season, uh, kind of gives way to something more specifically Southern Missouri Ozark, not unlike winter's bone. Okay. Um, and so because it's, it's, rooted in that area and there's this idea that like oh the big city people have come to the the rural town and then you're always like yeah rural people should not be underestimated because <laughs> they are very capable of well murdering you i guess yeah. um do you and know so do they actually shoot to, at the lake of the ozarks or, or uh, that area? i don't actually know huh. um i wouldn't be surprised i mean certainly the Topography uh, looks about right, but um, but yeah. So I do think that uh, that just the change in ensemble, not that the ensemble itself has changed, but the change in in threat and the change in villainy and the fact that the characters are now putting definitely putting their roots down in this area and kind of delving deeper into what it means to be a part of this area and finding the, the underbelly of it. Like I said, I feel like the first season was just more like pulpy and breaking bad. Whereas this one seems more genuine noir to me. And I do think that Jason Bateman, who was nominated for an Emmy, uh, for the first season, uh, rightfully so like he really anchors the show and I think helps set the tone for the show. And I think Jason Bateman is continuing to really impress me as an actor. I think a lot of us were surprised that he was, he could be as effective at comedy as he was in like arrested development and such. Mm -hmm. And then you saw stuff like the gift and Ozark and you realize that he is just a, just a good actor all around and a very naturalistic one. That's the other thing. Uh, but look, all of these, no matter how good they are, Uh pale in comparison to season two of American Vandal. As you know, I adored season one and I thought, and I wasn't sure what they were going to do with season two. And what they, what they did was, uh, it's a different case. Essentially season one was, Hey, who drew the dicks? Uh Season two is, I'm sorry to use the phrase. It's the phrase from the show. Who is the turd burglar? Yeah. All right. And it's ridiculous and it's crass and it's all of these things, but, and it's, and this one, 
probably made me laugh more than the first season, but it's also, I think, much more specific and much more invested in what it is to be somebody of this generation. Um, because so, social media plays such a role, it, it winds up being the problem and the solution because social media and being exploited and catfishing people through social media and that sort of thing is what causes all of these issues. But then also by searching, by looking deeper into people's social media, that's where the, the filmmakers find the answers. Um, I think that cast is uniformly wonderful. And that's the other thing is they need to, these actors all of whom are are experienced in movies and television, uh, but they need to be a very specific type of naturalistic. They, we need to buy that this is a uh, what is it? To ca- no, to catch a killer, making a murderer. Oh, okay. Uh, that it's that type of true crime documentary series, and it needs to ca- the the show needs to have a certain tone. The actors need to have a certain tone. It's wonderfully cast. Uh, the way that the mystery unfolds, I mean, I'm, I was completely invested. Uh, this one didn't actually take a lot of my time because I watched from beginning to end in one sitting, oh, wow. uh, it destroyed my night <laughs> just as not because it was bad, but because like I had plans, uh, which went away very quickly. And, uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Watch season one. I mean, you don't have to have watched season one to appreciate season two, but just when you actually add them up, it's like what I was, you know what? It's like what I'm talking about with Bojack Horseman, where the seasons are so similar from one to the other, even if they're good, like by the time you get to four and five, you're like, okay, I've seen this. Whereas Mm -hmm. this, the, the seasons are very different, but tonally and thematically they're exploring the same thing, but find different ways to get there so that, you know, if they, let's say they do four seasons, if they keep going the way they are, I feel like you will get such a, such a, a, a wide understanding of what it is to be this generation, what it is to live on social, you know, on social media and how these things work together. Um, and just the, a common theme of the two seasons is just an intense loneliness and it is incredibly powerful, incredibly funny, wonderfully made. I cannot recommend it highly enough.